0: One that will be provided for you in the chair in front of you. This will be in Isaiah chapter 1. Before the attacks of 9-11, many didn't know anything about what a terror sleeper cell was. After 9/11, all Americans heard about or t- about, uh, all we heard about was about terrorists who would come in, infiltrate our communities, wear the same things, dress the same way, get jobs, and wait and plan quietly at the night at, um, waiting for the right time to attack. Many of these cells were unrelated. They were disconnected. They had a complex system for communicating so that if you removed one, the others would remain in place, waiting to do an attack. And so you could remove um, part of the network, but you couldn't remove the whole network. In a similar way, the, the hearts of the people of Israel were infiltrated by sleeper cells. Sin had infected their actions the men and women of Judah had gotten this disease. Even from the king to the lowest child, they had an internal disobedience. So outwardly, they did all the right things, right? They, they went through the motions. They, um, they went and they sacrificed at the temple just as it was prescribed. They would bring the bulls and the goats and every animal that they had to sacrifice. They brought that. They would burn incense at the altar They would go and do hours of prayer time with their hands lifted up, and they would say the same things over and over and over again, countless prayers. And they would follow the law as it was prescribed, externally. But internally, they neglected quite a bit. They had rebellion in their own hearts. And the fact is, it's kind of like all of us. We have unbelief in our own hearts. Unbelief, um, and it's not. these are not big sins, right? I'm not talking about we go out and murder somebody or that we commit adultery. But it's, it's the small things, small tastes of unbelief, distrust in our hearts, little rebellions, little actions of rebellion, little sleeper cells of terror. And this is an, an age-old problem, right? We have a tendency towards false religion we have a tendency towards going through the motions but not actually worshiping there is a tendency in all of us to betray god actively and passively and it's these small sins these small sins of unbelief so let's go ahead and read this passage and i want you to read it as a message to yourself read it as if god is saying this to your own heart and so we start in verse 10 of chapter 1. It says, Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Listen to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What are all your sacrifices to me? asks the Lord. I have had enough of burnt offerings and rams and the fat of well-fed cattle. I have no desire for the blood of bulls. "'Lambs, or male goats. "'When you come to appear before me, "'who requires this from you, "'this trampling of my courts? "'Stop bringing useless offerings. "'Your incense is detestable to me, "'new moons and Sabbaths, "'and the calling of solemn assemblies. "'I cannot stand iniquity with a festival.'" I hate your new moons and prescribed festivals. They have become a burden to me. I am tired of putting up with them. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I will refuse to look at you, even if you offer countless prayers. I will not listen. Your hands are covered with blood. Verse 16 Wash yourselves, cleanse yourselves. Remove your evil deeds from my sight. Stop doing evil. Learn to do what is good. Pursue justice. Correct the oppressor. Defend the rights of the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. 18 says, come, let us settle this. Or your Bible may say, come, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Though they are crimson red, they will be like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you will eat the good things of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Let's pray. Father, as we read this passage, it should strike some fear in us. It should cause us to wonder, what is it that you want from us? God, as we see... The lives of the Israelites and their worship. In many ways they, they did everything perfectly as you had instructed. Yet there was something missing internally. Father, we fear to miss that as well. We ask that you would give us wisdom today, that you, we would see in your word the truth, that we would be encouraged and we would seek to be like you, we would follow after your will, that we would have a character that reflects your character, that we would seek to do justice, and to defend the weak. God, help us be a people who love you, who are so in love with you that we can't help but share that with those around us. Father, keep us from laziness, keep us from works of of worthlessness, but also keep us from sin and vile conduct. God, I pray that you would work in my heart as you work in theirs, in this congregation, and that you would encourage us through your word and the power that is in there. Father, give us wisdom as we examine this passage. Open our hearts to hear your word. Help us to not be like hard-hearted people who do not listen to what you have to say. Father, we thank you. We love you. And for your great mercy that you have bestowed upon us. In the beautiful name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. So our passage is clearly pointing out the issue. It gives instructions and commands, and then it wants us to respond.
1: The issue, of course,
0: is false religion. If you read this, you can't help but notice that that's kind of the issue in this passage. In fact, our psalmist this morning was pointing out that God doesn't need food from human beings. In fact, He doesn't even need our praise. He doesn't need anything from you, and He doesn't need anything from me. He doesn't need a single thing from humanity. He says, I don't need it. I own the cattle on a thousand hills. I own everything. I created it. I could create another exact duplicate of you if I wanted to. right? He could create, and he does whatever he wants. So what is it that he wants from us? And that's what we're going to see today. So let's have a a definition first. What is false religion? So false religion in this passage is being obedient externally, while rejecting God internally. So it's, a, it's an external obedience while rejecting God internally. False religion could also be given another definition. Half-heartedly going through the motions rather than full-heartedly trusting in God. Half-heartedly going through the motions rather than fully, full-heartedly go uh, trusting in God and that's all of us we all struggle with false religion in fact there's a, a, a streak of legalism within each and every one of us a streak of uh, manipulation if you will in each and every one of us some would say that there's a a a, a theme of atheism in our own hearts where we reject God, right? It, and it's not, this is not complicated, right? I'm not talking about something complex. It's simple. How often do you feel like not grabbing the Bible and doing your Bible reading during the week? How often do you not want to pray? Or maybe even Sundays are kind of becoming dreadful to you. Maybe you're, you're getting a little tired of getting up early or getting out of bed and coming to church and thinking through all the details of getting shoes on all the kids. Um, or dealing with that one person that said something kind of harsh to you last week, and now you've got to go to church and see that person, and the whole memory gets brought up again, and maybe I should just go somewhere else. How often do we half-heartedly come to church? Some days I don't want to gather with God's people. Some days I would rather sleep in. And that's a reality that we all struggle against in our lives. So if we're all inclined to false religion, God provides the antidote in a positive way, because that was kind of a, a negative way to say it. We could say that, we could ask this question and get the answer in this passage. What is full-hearted, God-pleasing worship? What is it? That's what we're going to look at today. What is full-hearted, God-pleasing worship? The first thing we notice is that it's a conviction of sin. It's a conviction of sin. The first step in worship is conviction of sin. Verse 10 starts to bring this out. It says, hear the word of the Lord. Now, I want to point something really interesting out. Isaiah is the master of transitions. He is a master at transitioning through these passages. So if you look at verse 9, let's go ahead and read what it says. If the Lord of armies had not left us a few survivors, we would be like Sodom, we would resemble Gomorrah. And then we pick it up in 10. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Listen to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah. Do you see that transition? That was really well done. He's transitioning from one point to another. And um, I don't always do that well with my points. And so I thought that was quite intricate. And what we notice is that the conviction is a product of the word of God. So in order to be convicted of sin, it's a product of the word of God. We only know the standard of right and wrong when we look at God's revealed word. You and I can be feel guilty about something we've done that does not reflect God's moral judgment. How often have you done something and you thought yourself so guilty? And as you read Scripture, God doesn't say anything about wearing pants to church. God doesn't say anything about what you have to do or the way you need to act in these areas. And we feel guilty about it. And we have this, this, I don't like this term, but I guess for lack of a better word, a false guilt. And so God's word is what shows us what is right and what is wrong. And so we only know the standard based on what God says. So how does God awaken the people of Judah? With his word. He awakens them, convicts them of sin through the word. Verses 11 through 14 shows that conviction is revealed by our heart attitudes. Verse 11 says, What are all your sacrifices to me? Now, I hope that you guys can catch the irony in this passage. I hope you see the language being used here. It's kind of sarcastic and a little bit not what we would expect from God. What are all your sacrifices to me? Asked the Lord. I have had enough of burnt offerings and rams and the fat of well-fed cattle. I have no desire for the blood of bulls, lambs, or male goats. When you come to appear before me, Who, think about that for a minute, why would God, who gave them the instructions on how to do sacrifices and worship, ask that question, who requires this of you? Well, God requires it of you. And then he goes, this trampling of my courts. The language is that of a bunch of wild animals coming into the church service and stomping over everything. God says, you guys are like a bunch of wild animals. Your hearts are not into it. You just brought it's like it would be as if someone brought all their goats from home and brought them into our sanctuary and just let them wander around or brought a bunch of uh, cows in here. And all you hear is the trampling of their hooves on our on our carpet. And what we have is this this imagery of foolishness, of coming before the Lord with bad heart attitudes. He goes on and, and this is my favorite verse in the or part of the whole passage. I just want you to know. I cannot stand iniquity with a festival. I mean, that's just, that's just poetic right there. I cannot stand sin with a party. Why are you celebrating your sin? Why are you having a party with this bad heart attitude? What are you celebrating? What's so good about what you've brought? It's a bad heart attitude. So conviction is revealed by our heart attitudes. You can go through the motions live a moral life, and then still miss the entire point. You can come to church every Sunday from the day you were in your mother's belly, and you can miss the point. You can come, you can sing the worship songs, you can read your Bible every day, you can memorize Scripture, you can do all of that and still miss the point. So what is the point? Well, we'll get there. We're just taking the long way. We're doing the scenic route What can we do? How do do we avoid having a party over our sin? Um, I I don't know how many times my mom asked me why I'm having a pity party. And that reminds me of what this would look like. You're having a party over your sin. He goes on. He says, I hate. Man, that's some pretty powerful words coming from the Lord, isn't it? I hate your new moons, which is kind of when there's a new moon, they would have certain requirements from the law and prescribed festivals. They have become a burden to me. I am tired of putting up with them. Have you ever said that to your children? It gets exhausting sometimes being a parent. And you get tired of putting up with the same arguments, the same fights. My kids have, uh, have a talent of fighting over the smallest things. My boys especially. So I'm glad they're not in here today, so we'll talk about them. And this, I'm sure I was worse as a kid, so don't don't think this is me picking on them. But every time we get into the van, they fight over what seat the other one is sitting in. So at first, they could only sit in the back, and there was two seats in the back. And they would fight over which one got the window seat and which one had the middle seat. Then we got it to the point where there's a seat up front and a seat in the back. And now they fight over who sits in the back and who sits in the front. And it's just continually—so like we have to actually have a program— For each step. So on the way to school, this guy gets to sit here and the other guy gets to sit there. And on the way back, we switch places. And let's not forget who sat where because it will be a a very big drama. Okay, so I just lost why that was important, but it's a burden. It becomes a burden. Okay, It's it's a burden. And so the Lord is saying, you are bringing your sacrifices, but your heart's not into it. You're doing these external things but you don't mean it. You don't really care to have the forgiveness of sins. In fact, some of you are worshiping false gods, bringing your sacrifices to the temple, and still trying to do both. It is exhausting. He is tired of it. And the 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 third thing we see about conviction of sin is that conviction is obvious in our prayer attitudes. This, to me, is kind of like the thermometer that tells me the temperature of my, my spiritual life. What are my prayers like? How am I spending my time praying? What do they look like? The quickest way for you to identify if you are drifting into false worship is your prayer life. So, begin to ask, am I asking more than I am praising the Lord? Am I coming to God and asking for things? Or am I coming to Him praising Him? Do I pray because it's just the right thing to do? Or is it, am I praying because I get to do that, because I get to spend time with my Lord and my Savior? Are you desperately pleading for God, or are you just going through the motions? Is there a desperateness to your prayer? Is there a recognition of your humility and His exaltation? What do my prayers look like? Am I just going through the motions? Do I have a prayer time in the morning and I just spend 20 minutes wandering? And when I say that I don't mean like walking around the house doing chores, but I'm talking about is your mind wandering. I don't know about you, but there's seven other things that pop into my mind the minute I sit down to worship the Lord on Sunday morning. The minute I come into the sanctuary and I sit down and I begin to think about the sermon, I think about what God wants me to do. What pops in? Man, did I pull out some cash to do this? Did I what's for dinner tonight? I wonder if Jessica made that delicious steak that she made the other day. And I start thinking about all the good things. And I think about all this. My mind begins to drift. And instead of focusing on what I came here to do, I begin to drift. And the same thing with our prayer time. How often do you open up the Word of God and you read a couple verses and then you start thinking, man, I wonder what uh, school is like for the kids today. You know, and next thing you know, you're, you've drifted. Or the, uh, the tyranny of your job begins to pop into your mind. You have 17 other things that you have to do, and you begin to push out the Lord. We use the Word of God to convict us of our sins. It's to realign us, because it's very easy to say, well, that's just normal, and we should do it that way. But God's Word says, no, there's something better. There's something better in store for you. So this is the first step in recognizing your false religion, is conviction of sin. The second is correction by instruction. Verse 16 begins with wash yourselves. Oh, let me go back to 15 before we move there. I just want to cover this. It says, I will not listen. Your hands are covered with blood. In the very end of verse 15. What is he talking about? My hands don't have any blood on them. He's talking about guilt. He says, you guys are guilty and you come to me with these bloody hands, and you raise them up, and you're worshiping me with full and covered in guilt. It could be in reference to the fact that they have been committing violence. It's, um, it's a, the blood term here is really more for violence than for sacrifices, but it connects really well to the whole subject of worship, and the process of worship was killing the animal, and there's bloodletting, and blood was everywhere. So it could be that he was they were worshiping, and their hands are covered in blood, Or could it be that they are guilty? I think it's a combination of both. I think Isaiah is using both of these. Because it really ties in well with verse 16, which says, Wash yourselves, cleanse yourselves, remove your evil deeds from my sight. So what we see is that conviction is... um, Part of conviction means we take responsibility. We take responsibility this verse points to man's responsibility in confessing and repenting. Now, here's the thing. It's very easy for us to now turn this into legalism again, isn't it? We can turn this whole process back into a legalistic thing. Well, apparently I didn't wash my hands enough. Apparently I'm not clean enough to go before God. And that's not what this passage has in mind here. In fact, we can fall into that category where we just think, well, now I got to do better. I just I really need to do better. i got to get my heart right. i got to come to church with the right heart. I can't pray without praying with the right And And you end up not praying, right, because you've put all these barriers in your life. And so what, what we're doing here is we're not falling into the ditch on the right, so we don't want to fall back into legalism. But at the same time, we like to take a sharp left turn right into the ditch of antinomianism, which means anti-law. Joy shook her head like, what in the world? Bless you right? Gesundheit. No, what, what that means is you become lawless. Well, I don't got to do anything. I'm just going to sit on my couch and not do anything. God will take care of it all. And so we want to be careful not to fall into legalism or anti-legalism, where we don't do anything. Laziness, maybe we could say. And so how do we correct these two streams? First Corinthians fifteen ten says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, now listen to this. This is where it comes in. I worked harder than any of them. So this is Paul saying he worked harder than any of them. Talking about the apostles. Yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. So that you see how it's combined. There's, there's a, a mystery to where it relates. So you do the best that you can. And at the same time, God is doing His work. It's not a, you give 50, He gives 50, you get to 100. It's you do the best that you can, and God does His work. And so there's a responsibility that we have. How much of it do we contribute? That's the mystery. But the reality is God does the work, and we also submit through our own hard work by confessing and repenting. So in 16... He says wash yourselves, and to wash yourselves means you recognize that you're dirty. That's the first step. Are you convicted of your sins? Cleanse yourself. Well, the way that we as Christians cleanse ourselves, and even in the Old Testament, cleansing yourself involved confession and repentance. Remove the evil deeds from my sight. Stop doing evil. So that's the first thing. You must recognize yourself as sinful and remove it. Verse 17 then tells you what you're supposed to do. There's repentance. 17 says, learn to do what is good, which is good news because it's something we can achieve. We can learn it. Pursue justice, correct the oppressor, defend the rights of the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. Repentance means turning from one course of action to another. In this case, God is calling Judah to stop with the injustice and do what is right. The people that are listed here, the the oppressed, the fatherless, the widow, all these are, are people who would be considered the dredges of society. They're not really the, the most, I don't know what you would say, protected people. And so the king's job was to ensure justice in the land. And so many people would take this passage and say, well, he's... T- um, God and through Isaiah, is talking to only the king of Judah, saying the king of Judah needs to make sure he does these things. But the reality is it's, it's for all of us. It's for all people that we need to do what is good. So why would Isaiah, through the inspiration of the Lord, say that we must do what is good? Why do we repent? Because we are ne- needing to align ourselves to the character of God. The first thing we see in Genesis is that he created the heavens and the earth. And what was the the thing that he said after he created? It was good. It was good. It was good. It was very good. And he kept saying it was good. And so what is going on here is the people of Israel are not reflecting the character of God. They are not doing what is good. They are doing the opposite of God's character. They are not pursuing justice. They're pursuing injustice. They're trying to get what they could get for themselves. They are not correcting the oppressor. In fact, they aid the oppressor. They are not defending the rights of the fatherless. Instead, they are working against it. Instead of pleading the widow's cause, they let the widow do whatever she has to do and survive on her own. Which means, ultimately, we need to value what the Lord values. That's what he is telling them here in this passage. He's saying, listen, Israel... You are not valuing what I value. You are not doing justice and loving mercy and walking humbly with me. You're doing the opposite. You're doing whatever you want to do, and then you're trying to cover it up through sacrifice. Now, this is where the reply comes in. If you were a Judah and you were listening to this sermon, your brain would immediately go to, but what about? Lord, what about the time that I brought this oxen and sacrificed him? What about the time that we went to the new moon festivals. Lord, we're following all your commandments. We're doing what you told us to do. And what does God say? Come, let's settle this. So often, religious ceremonies numb us to what God wants. It allows us to put Him in the past, and then we focus on magical, man-centered, self-pleasing demands which then blurs God's moral commands. This is the problem of the Pharisees in the New Testament. The Pharisees were so good at knowing the letter of the law, they decided to miss the Spirit. They became numb to who God was, His character, and they used that as an excuse to get away from stuff. They had a responsibility to their parents. They said, you know what, Mom? Instead of actually supporting you like I'm supposed to, I gave the money that I was going to give to you, I gave it to the Lord. Because the Lord will take care of you. Oh, mom, don't worry. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna come home for these festivals to take care of you. I know Dad's gone, but uh, we're just gonna worship God in the temple, and I just need to be there. Right. That's that's what they're doing. They're they're taking the commands of the Lord and turning it into doing whatever they want to do. Um, and and that's what we do too when we come to church. and say, well, I went to church. So I should be able to lie and steal the rest of the week. I went to church, but I I can hate my brother in Christ. Well, I went to church. That'll save me. And what Isaiah is pointing to is that this false religion is deadly. When there is trusting and obedience in a relationship with God, ceremonies can be helpful in symbolizing that relationship. When you have a good relationship with the Lord Monday through Saturday, going to church is just a reflection of that reality. The problem is most of us aren't in a good trusting relationship with the Lord during the week. And so we come to church on Sunday trying to act like it is. We need to recognize where our heart is. And then we need to commit to obedience, which is our third point. Verse 18 through 20 goes into settling this. Verse 18 says, come, let's settle this, says the Lord. Another way you could understand that is let's reason together. Let's debate this. Bring your case before me. Because ultimately, that's what the people of Judah are doing. They're bringing their case to God. They're like, God, we've kept every sacrifice. Like we we follow the Ten Commandments. Now we may not follow it... To the spirit, but we follow the letter, right? I don't diso- dishonor my parents when I go over here, but you know, I don't really like my parents, right? And we go through this whole justification process. And so what we see is that there's a commitment to obedience that is required of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, the Proverbs tell us, which is a helpful way for us to understand obedience. Now, here's the thing. When you see the word obedience immediately in your mind, you're thinking about legalism, right? You want to do it a certain way and there's certain rules I must follow. And if I follow the right rules, God will give me the candy bar at the end of the tunnel, right? I get rewarded for what I do is I say a prayer, I drop a quarter into, the, into God who is my vending machine and it out comes out the snack that I want, right? So often we think this way, maybe not verbally, maybe we don't say it out loud, but that's how we think. And so what what we have here is a commitment to obedience. It says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Jeremiah 32, when talking about the new covenant, when talking about the change of heart that's going to happen in the new covenant, it says this, uh, verse 40. I will make a permanent covenant with them. I will never turn away from doing good to them. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts. And then he gives us a reason. So they will never again turn away from me. So God places the fear of him in the heart of a new believer in order to never turn away again. The people of Israel lost their fear of the Lord. That's what was the cause of their false religion. So God works in the heart of believers by placing the fear of the Lord in them so that we worship properly. The people of Israel stopped thinking about him and their situation. They stopped desiring him, and they stopped choosing to follow him, which kind of points to one main thing here in verse 18, that obedience is intellectual. God calls his people to reason, to use their minds to discover the truth of the matter. There's many ways you can use this word. That's why this passage says, let's settle this. Or your passage may say, let's reason together, but there's a, a judgment, an intellectual decision making that must happen. So, first of all, your faith is not blind, it is involved. There's an intellectual aspect to it, there's a thinking that is required. So, when you look at your day, you can say, Well, I don't feel like opening my Bible this morning, but instead, you can think through the process and why you should. Open up your Bible Monday morning, even though it feels like it's going to be too busy. There's an intellectual aspect to this. You have to think. And I know thinking is hard, and we don't like to do it, and we don't want to process, but we have to think, which really helps us understand the nature of our obedience. Thinking rightly about obedience means knowing what God does in obedience, The reason we can obey as Christians versus the Old Testament is because of what Christ has done for us. If you would have true devotion to God, you can think of it as a triangle in many ways. The bottom left is the fear of the Lord, having a fear for God. The bottom right is a love for God, which then leads to devotion to God. Fear and love are key elements, key ingredients to understanding God properly, to worshiping Him. And the fear, when I say fear, I'm not saying like a a shaking in your boots, you want to run away, though that is an aspect of it, which we see in Isaiah 6. But what I'm saying is that you have a reverence for God. You respect the character of God. It's kind of like if you go and you look at the Grand Canyon and you see how majestic it is, how big. Nobody goes to the edge of the Grand Canyon and says, I am God. Nobody does. that'd That'd be foolishness. You look at that Grand Canyon and you're humbled. You're humbled because you cannot ever have the power that God has. And so we see this recognition. Revelation seven fourteen says, Then he told me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. So who does the washing of our robes, of our filthy rags? It's Christ. Christ washes us through His blood. And so we have a a love for what He has done. Obedience is also emotional. There's an emotional aspect of your obedience. The emphasis is on action, not feeling. In Matthew 21, 28-32, I'm just going to summarize this parable. Jesus tells a parable about a dad who goes to his son and says, Hey, son. Go out into the field and get to work. The son says, okay, sure, dad, no problem. And then the, 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 the father then goes off and he tells the next son, son, another son, go work in the field, go, go to work. And the son said, sure, or he said, no, I don't feel like it today. And then the father leaves. Father's out of the picture. Now we have the two sons. The first son who said, yes, no problem, ends up not going chooses not to go. So he had a a willingness, at least to his father's face, but he didn't go and do what he was supposed to. The second son did not feel like going, but ended up getting up and going to work anyway. Which one do you think Jesus said did the right thing? Well, it's the one who did the work. The one who actually got up, even though he didn't feel like it, he went to work. So sometimes we don't feel like coming to church. Sometimes we don't feel like opening up the scriptures or praying. But that's not what the emphasis is on. The emphasis is on the action. Now, I bet you're thinking in your mind, Pastor Matt, we just talked about coming and doing half-hearted worship. And now you're talking about coming to worship even if you don't feel like it. What gives? We'll get there. I have a lot of... I'm, I'm, I'm banking a lot at the end of this passage here. So we have the emphasis that God cleanses our emotions, our dispositions, And finally, in verse 20, we have choice. Verse 19 says, If you are willing and obedient, you will eat the good things of the land. 20 says, But if you refuse and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. We are obedient because God provides forgiveness and cleansing. We are obedient. Instead of rejecting, we submit to His Word. So we choose to follow God rather than our own wisdom. We follow the wisdom of the Lord rather than our own. And then the last bit of this, we see that there are consequences for disobedience. You can either eat of the good stuff or you can be eaten. That's basically what verse 20 says. If you refuse and rebel, you will be devoured, which is just another word for eating, right? By the sword for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Verse 19 says, you will eat the good things of the land. So just like what God said to the people of Israel as they entered the promised land, you can be obedient and you will live in this land of milk and honey, or you can rebel and you can have the consequences. And that's typically how I explain that to my children at my house. You can either be obedient and it will go well for you, or you can be disobedient and it's going to be hard for you because there will be discipline. You will get spankings. That's just how it works. And the same thing for us. We can either be obedient to the Lord, following his wisdom, or we can reject him. So, let's get to the conclusion. What's the antidote? Obedience flows from a love for and fear of God. That's it. Our obedience is not, we don't obey to get God's love. We don't obey because we're afraid of him. We are obedient because we love God. We love God first because He first loved us, then we obey. So we can't really measure up to the law that was given here. And Jesus summed up the law for us. He said, love the Lord your God with with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. Now I can tell you, I fail with this so often. Because I live in a distracted world full of internet, full of emails through text messages and phone calls and everything else. And my mind will go a million other places, as I'm sure yours does as well. So the antidote is to recognize our failure, to be convicted. God, I fail. I fail over and over and over again. First John 1.9 says "If we confess our sins. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us, that's the key word, cleanse us of all unrighteousness. The antidote is to recognize our failure, confess the standard of the word, and then submit and obey with Christ's help. A heart captured by God worships out of joy. Obedience or external worship is just the feet that carry us in the way of joy. Would you have true joyful worship? Is that something that you want? Then you have to turn in your heart to Christ daily by rejecting self-made religion. You ask Him, you go to Him, and He promises that He will cleanse your heart. He will set you straight intellectually, emotionally, and volitionally. Volitionally is just a fancy word for choice for choosing. It just didn't rhyme with the other ones. So volitionally, sorry, I had to add it in there. So would you turn to him today instead of relying on just going through the motions? I mean, you can read your Bible. You can read passages and passages and still not be changed by it. You can say a couple prayers. You can go to church all you want, but true transformation comes from the Lord. That's the antidote, eh, antidote, antidote to false worship is the fear and love of the Lord. Do you fear Him? Do you love Him? If you do, then grasp onto Him. Allow His change in your heart. Grasp onto the Him of the One who paid it all. And when I say Him, I mean H-E-M, not H-Y-M-N. Him, grab onto His cloak and be changed, transformed by the one who paid it all. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your transforming love. We thank you for the fear of you. God, we thank you that we can come to you and look at your character and recognize that we fail to measure up to the one who does everything correctly, who is perfect, who is pleasing. You are the ultimate good for all of us. And Father, we fall short day in and day out. Our characters, our actions, never properly reflect your character. And so for for that, God, we, we ask for forgiveness. We ask that you would transform our hearts, that we would turn away from our wickedness and turn to you. Lord, be the antidote to false religion. The love and the fear of the Lord is the beginning of that wisdom that we can use to worship you. So Father, I pray that we can Worship you not through some manipulate, uh, manipulation, not through some ignorance, but in full trust in who you are and your character. God, I thank you for this book in Isaiah, this chapter of Isaiah that, that points to you, shows us where we fall short and how we can have hope and trust in you, that you cleanse us, that we can overcome the world through the blood of the Lamb. Father, I pray that everyone here can sing the hymn, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe, because we have nothing good within us in order to do this. We thank you for your mercy. Lord, thank you for your mercy on me. Thank you for this church, this congregation. I'm so honored to be able to worship with them on a regular basis and to sit next to them and sing these hymns that we sing about trust in our Jesus. God, I thank you for service to Baptists and all that you have done in our lives here at this church. Pray that you would continue to help us to be a people who seek to worship you in spirit and truth, that we would be a people who know the antidote to false religion, that we would not fall back into a spirit of slavery, but that we would be freed from the burden of sin and guilt through trusting in Jesus Christ. Lord, I thank you for your mercy upon me and upon this congregation. And all these things we ask in Jesus' name, amen.